to the Advancing Women in Sport podcast. Hi, I'm your host, Michelle Redfern. In this first season, not just a statistic, I'm bringing you the stories of women in sport from career start to the boardroom. Every episode is with an amazing woman from a range of different sports and a range of different positions in sport. And every episode is going to give you some actionable insights as a sports fan, as a member, as an administrator, as a leader to take action on how to close the leadership gender gap in sport. I hope you enjoy the episode. The Advancing Women in Sport podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wadawurrung, Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to Elders past and present, for they hold the memories, the traditions, the culture and the hopes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across this nation. We also pay our respects to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Emily is currently the women's head coach at Mondalk Football Netball Club. She is also a project officer for the Girls on the Move project, a project serves to increase physical activity amongst culturally and linguistically diverse girls and young women in Melbourne's southeast. Emily has a background in teaching sport and recreation and completed a Bachelor of Arts at Deakin University with a major in sociology and a minor in sport and society. Early in her career, Emily worked with the AFL as Game Development Officer and was integral to the development and inauguration of the Eastern Region Girls Football League, which is now home to over 150 junior female football teams. Emily calls upon leaders to go out and speak to girls and women in our conversation. She says, ask yourself, when was the last time you had a conversation with a woman in your organisation and what is the best step moving forward? When was the last time that you did research into what was actually going on with the experiences that they're having? Music to my ears and how can you best support that? Emily believes that clubs with multiple gender-based teams need to work collaboratively to create opportunities for shared learning and development and to facilitate a club culture that's more inclusive of girls and women. This is a really great episode for me and I also call upon leaders to get to know how the gig economy prevails for women in sport and the implications for women and for sport when women have to juggle multiple jobs. By doing so, we can ensure that women are thriving and not just surviving in or exiting from their careers in sport. I hope you enjoy this lively episode. So Emily, what was the motivation for you to enter into the world of sport and what got you to where you are today? The motivation probably stems from when I was a child. Like I always loved football growing up. And I think that was based on my stepdad. He loved going every week to watch Carlton play. And I think it was almost like my way of fitting in because he wasn't my real dad. And so I kind of went over the top and became obsessed with it. But that's how we got along really well. And I think reflecting also on my childhood growing up, football was definitely the thing that I focused on as probably an escape. And so it sort of became my life for quite a while. I would go to as many games as I could, you know, when internet sort of came about and was a lot more accessible, I'd be reading up on footy articles all the time. Yeah, massively obsessed. And, you know, to get to what I've done in my career, I was sort of given an ultimatum by my mum in year 10, which I, you know, I really struggled in school. And so she said, well, you can either continue or if you drop out, you've got to go do a trade. And I found a certificate three in sport and recreation, which focused on football. From then, I sort of haven't really looked back. I gained a skill set in coaching and running clinics for younger kids in primary schools. And I started volunteering with my footy club at the time. And then I managed to play. So I'd never actually been able to play football as a kid. Yeah, I was given an opportunity at about 14 or 15 years old to start playing football. And from then, you know, I finished my 
course, got a diploma in sport development and started working for the AFL. So that sort of was the background into how I started in the football world. So it was interesting you talking about volunteering because I know from from research that, well, number one sport in Australia has a lot of people who contribute to it in a voluntary capacity. And we know that women are overrepresented in the volunteer ranks in sport. However, we've also heard the stories about people like Peggy O'Neill, who's you know, the president of Richmond Football Club, first woman president of an AFL club, who started off as a volunteer, kind of showed up. We were just talking off air about showing up and turning up. She kept showing up and saying, what can I do? What can I do? And progress through the ranks. Is volunteering, and I'm very, very careful about not loading this question up, I'm always keen to understand, is volunteering the way to get into the sport and make a career out of the sport that you love? Or is that something that's quite gendered and expected of women to do? My experience in sport and the people that I've worked with, male or female, most have started off volunteering. However, it does seem as if males would tend to be promoted into roles that are paid more easily than what women are. Yeah, it is a little bit, you know, that that's one that's just occurred to me as you were talking about it. So I, I wonder, because we know that the burden of women to do stuff for free, and this is around gender stereotypes, women are nurturing and caring and do all this kind of stuff for the good of humanity and men achieve outcomes for businesses and sports and things like that. So I am really interested in in how that plays out then, how women progress through to particularly to senior or decision-making roles within the sport or the sports organisation. And I suppose if, if anyone was to look at a football club and say, well, who's who's doing the canteen? Who's doing the jumpers, washing of the jumpers and organising it? Who's on the board? <laughs> who's on the match or the selection committee? And it's hard not to have a, oh, well, the women would be doing the canteen and the jumpers or the merch and the men will be doing the match committee, the the board and what have you. So I am interested in that pathway, how volunteering is such a great way to get into sport and become involved. But then how do we make sure that women can have a pathway if they want it, but have an equal or equitable shot at that volunteering turning into roles where decisions are made about the fabric and the strategy and the who the club or, or the organisation is using all lived experience around that decision-making table. Funny, as you were talking about the gender roles that happen in football and, you know, what, what roles women will take on and what roles men will take on, because I was thinking before you had even mentioned that, because my volunteering was as a coach and it had always been as a coach, I don't want to say it made me credible, but you could say that that was almost the more of the masculine approach to volunteering and therefore my experiences became more valid when it came to decision-making and being in positions of leadership. However, in, in saying that, you know, I coach a women's team now in a senior football club and probably one of the best clubs I've been involved with in terms of gender equality. I wouldn't say that they are perfect, but it's still very, very good for a local country club. There are still differences. You know, the fact that I coach women's tends to almost stray away from the senior men's a little bit and unless I really actively put myself in the position where I'll sit with the senior men's coaches on match day and get more, you know, you can air quotes for experience and I do reflect on, you know, this conversation I had with a 
senior member of the sporting club that I'm associated with. And I think it was to a degree quite innocent, but it really sums up almost sort of what we're saying in terms of experiences where I had met him for the first time and he was um, part of the coaching um, of the senior men's. And, he, you know, I'd been introduced as um, the women's coach. And that's it. We hadn't really started pre-season or anything. And he introduced himself and I mean, he was quite probably quite drunk at the time as well, which probably didn't help, but it was myself, him and the president. And without asking me any of my experiences, anything that I knew about football, he proceeded to tell me how the senior men's coach of the club um, was a really great role model and that I would learn so much from him and I should go sit in the box. And he's the best, the best coach, you know, that he's ever um, had, you know, at this club in particular. And I was just listening, you know, just going, yeah, that's a really, really great point. And, you know, he was telling me all these great ways to engage my players and everything. And then I, I said, do you know anything about me? And he goes, no, not at all. And the president, who was in that conversation too, just looked at him and he's like, you need to shut up. because. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the president was laughing. And I, and I thought, isn't this funny? Because to that person in particular, you know, I'd been coaching for 10 years. I'd coached at a semi-elite level. I'd coached nationally. I literally studied sociology to understand people and how environments impact them, you know, really to focus on football, you know, how to work with my athletes. And, you know, I've taught coaching and not to say that I know absolutely everything about sport and football and coaching. There's so much to learn about leadership, but it's fascinating having those experiences and being able to look at it and go, gee, there's some gender bias there, unconscious gender bias. Just a bit. And like, what do you do in that situation? There's two ways I could take it. I could, you know, go and yell at him and be like, you need to respect me more or just let him live in his unconscious world <laughs> with not even knowing what he's having or the effect that he's having on me. And like Buzzy Socks, he came, he came and helped out, help us out at training and stuff. And I think he's learned a few things too. But these are the experiences that we have as volunteers and the perceived gender. And I wonder how many times the head coach of the men's has had someone come up and give him a, a very long diatribe about how much he can learn, et cetera, et cetera. There's two things occurring to me as you you were recounting that experience. Number one is something I saw on Instagram and reposted just recently, which was an elite woman runner was on a plane and she posted that she had a gentleman sit down next to her and they got talking about running and, and he proceeded to give her an overview about how she could be a better runner and showed her all of this stuff. And she didn't have the heart to tell him that the training program and the athlete that he was referring to in telling her how she could be better better was actually her. So I, I posted that as a, and I posted it on my sweary Instagram, not my advancing women in Instagram, as a really good example of mansplaining and not actually asking one thing about that human being, about who she was, how credible she was, but proceeded to assume through a very gendered lens that she was less than, less qualified, not good enough, not credible yet. And those are experiences, and the one that you've just related are experiences that women, particularly women in leadership positions and coaching positions in male-dominated sporting environments, experience all the time. So that was my my first kind of thing that occurred to me as you were talking. The second one was a question. So you've taken it upon yourself to sit with the men's program, observe the men's coach, etc. How many of the men have come and sat with you? How many of the men are observing your coaching style and learning about the women's game? My first thing that I was going to say is definitely not as as much or as many but then I also think back to I think at the start of the season I was really excited 
about footy. And so I went and watched a couple of the training sessions to seal a few drills. And I was a bit more involved. But then as the season went on, I noticed that they didn't show up. Like sometimes they'd come to the huddle. We play after the senior men's. We have a twilight game. So it's actually quite nice. We usually have a crowd, which you don't usually get in women's football. And so some of them would come to the halftime huddle, the quarter time huddle. And I had like a coach come to a training session once, but there wasn't much interaction or them learning off me. And, you know, I think if you which maybe looked at it from, I, this is an assumption, you know, of what their perspective would be, you know, we were losing all of our games. You know, we got thumped every game. We moved up a division and it's the second year that the girls had ever played a game of, played a season of football. So, you know, in those air quotation marks again, really local, not a super great brand of footy. However, I suppose if any of them had taken the time out to have a conversation with me about what I was doing, what I was planning, and, you know, it was literally the whole season was about teaching the girls the fundamentals of football and how to understand the game so that when they're out on the field, it's not about where they just go in and grab it and then kick it, you know, straight down the line. It's where are the opposition? Can we move it on a 45? Are, are there, is the oppo going in and congesting the footy? How do we see that? And then how do we react to that so that we can actually cover the dangerous space on the outside to then get a turnover? You know, and there was a massive plan behind all of that and all of what I taught. Yet, you know, now that I think of it, none of them actually came and sat down and had a conversation with me about it. And the reality is, is that the senior coach of the men's team and I had very similar game styles, if you wish, things that we were teaching just the girls were at a very 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 fundamental level with the skill set that they had and the knowledge that they had but you know we use the same language we yeah the same game plan essentially but just different players but I don't think any of them would have actually clicked onto that you know unless they had actually been a part of the conversation or picked my brain okay That, that's kind of what I thought. And, you know, so I don't want this series or this these conversations to be just shaking a fist at the sky at the glaring inequity that occurs in footy and in sport more generally. But, you know, you've, you've given a couple of immediate call to actions for leaders, for sporting administrators. Number one, have a look at your volunteering ranks and look at the pathways that those volunteering ranks and those roles create. And if there's a pathway from canteen person through to um chair of the board, awesome. Uh, But don't dismiss someone who turns up to do the oranges at halftime, wash the jumpers, serve the community in the canteen, has any less passion than a person who's turning up to do whatever else, you you know, mark the lines, set up the goalposts, whatever it may be. And the second part is where there are, uh, and I'm being binary with gender, but when, when there are both genders playing in a sporting club, let's learn from each other because there are things to be learned from women coaches. There are things to be learned from women athletes by male coaches and male athletes. And what I've seen in my experience is where you have two programs that have a deliberate and intentional approach to mixing the two and having opportunity for shared learning, shared development, shared understanding and empathy, it makes for a much more conducive program. And part of that is also women feeling like they're not just a tack on or an add-in to a club, that they are truly part of it. So call to action, 
pathways for volunteers of all genders and for people involved in the male program, get involved in the women's program and vice versa, because the women are getting involved in the male programs because they want to learn. So thanks, Emily. Good, good advice from you. Now, off on a sort of segueing into your experiences and uh, around footy, you've done a lot. You've had a lot of roles, both volunteer and and in the paid workforce. And you've had to juggle. You've had to juggle multiple roles, which is something that is, while it's not exclusive to women in the sporting arena, but it is, again, we know that women are disproportionately affected by effectively the gig economy in sport. You do a bit of work here and a bit of work there and a bit of work there to try and make a whole life. So can you tell us about what that's like and what the implications and the outcomes were for you with that juggling? That's a really great way to put it. I've never thought of it like that. The consistent juggling of different sporting gigs uh, just to remain a part of the system. When I was 19, I created, well, was part of a group but led a lot of it, the Eastern Region Girls Junior Football League. And that was a part-time role um, that was embedded within the Eastern Football League and the AFL Yarra Rangers. That's what they were called at the time, which is now the AFL Outer East. And in order to work their part-time and also pay my bills because I had moved out, you know, 19. I was living in a share house and then I ended up living on my own when I was 20. So a time that I was working for the league, <laughs> looking back now, it's crazy. I was also trying to get more work as a game development officer. So part of my role as the junior football coordinator, female football coordinator was to promote the game. And so then only if I created more work for myself, then I could get paid from a different element, a different area funding as a game development officer to go out to schools to promote the game itself you know I only got paid during football season and the planning of football season so there was an off season that I had to try and find a job for and then you know if you can imagine working for eight months of the year and then having four months off and trying to find a job and then trying to pay your bills it's a really hard balance I ended up working for a boarding school I was really lucky got a really good job and that required weekend work and I was would you know would have been making thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars for a weekend and you could never knock that down at nineteen years old, hanging out with young indigenous girls looking after them. And so trying to combine that, you know, so I could actually make money for the first time in my life. And running a football league that I was my baby and I was really passionate about and then trying to go out to schools and run clinics. Like there was a point where I was working during football season. I would work every day of the week and have Tuesday afternoons off and that was it. But I knew that if I walked away from the football world, I thought I knew at the time that if I walked away from football, I wouldn't get an opportunity like that again. And so you're almost held hostage to this like idea that, you know, you're the luckiest person in the world to work for you know, the organization that you, you, you've loved as a kid. But then caught in this struggle of, well, how do I pay my bills? And then how sustainable is this? And how can I have a life? And that's probably something that I would want to be touching on. Maybe it could be now, it could be later in our conversation, which is when you work in the football environment, like it can be very unforgiving at times. I think you can meet the most beautiful people there that are passionate about the sport and, you know, especially in the female space about giving females opportunity. But if you're not up for it or if you can't commit or if you want more of a work-life balance, it's 
almost impossible to sustain for a long period of time. I think the, the word unforgiving is is very, very apt because my own experience in the world of football as a board member and observing CEOs, marketing people, events people, operations people in, in clubs, and, I, and I'm talking country league as well as the Victorian Football League, it is seven days a week and literally for nine to ten months of the year. And then it goes to like a normal week of perhaps 40 or 50 hours. You're right. It is a very, very unforgiving environment for those who work full-time and are paid full-time. But when you are gigging as you were, and as many of of the women do in in football now, it does mean holding multiple jobs with all of the other responsibilities that life throws at you. So, So we know that that happens. And I don't know that there's, I think a major rethink and a major redesign of the way we do sport is is absolutely crucial for both men and women and non-binary people. I just don't think it's it's realistic. But for you, Emily, there was a really significant and serious consequence of that of 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 leading that lifestyle, wasn't there? Yeah, hundred percent. Definitely after three years, and it was probably mainly two years of really pushing it. I burnt out hardcore, and in that period of time, you know, my whole identity was wrapped up in running this football league that I was doing part-time but there was never a moment so I lived in Hillsville at the time and I'd go shopping in Ringwood or you know I'd go to Glen Waverley or something and our league spanned from Glen Waverley all the way out to Warburton but whenever I'd go shopping down the line I would run into somebody even if I didn't know them who knew who I was and who would always be asking about the footy league or yeah just female football in general because I wouldn't say I was the expert but I was the person that was leading like that I was the face of of that. I was going to say, you're the visible go-to person. Yeah, and to just not... I almost have a day off. Like I always felt like I had to be on all the time when I, whenever I was going down the street, there's never a moment we can go down in trackies and, you know, a hoodie and go down to Coles or anything like that. It seriously felt like I had to be on all the time. And that's, that's 50 kilometers worth of, of area that most the whole outer Eastern suburbs, if not bigger, which is crazy looking back on that now. And yeah, I lost like burnt out. And then that's who I was, who I felt like I was at the time. And not, so not only did I lose my job and then I stopped working at my other jobs because I managed to save up a bit of money and I could afford the time off. I'd lost my identity. I'd lost, you know, who I thought my friends were because I didn't go out partying with everyone because I was too busy working. And so I had to literally reshape my whole life based on that experience. And, you know, to where I am now, which is six or seven years down the track, you know, I'm still suffering not necessarily burnout, but yeah, I'm suffering like health consequences due to like an unstable work life purely because I've dedicated, like I've chosen to do this, but dedicated a lot of my time and efforts into coaching and really understanding people to the best capacity that I can. And you know, there's not a lot of work in what I do, but I don't do it. No one else will. And I like what I do but it is almost unsustainable to a degree. And there are consequences that come with that and decisions that need to be made on on how I live my life now due to those. So for those people listening who, and I particularly want the leaders of sporting organisations to understand what, what burnout looks like in another person, but also what it feels like. Biggest one for me is the massive disinterest in something that I once loved. Struggling to get out of bed for something that I couldn't wait for the next day to do. Um, Being grumpy, being tired, stressed, 
anxious and not being understood was probably the hardest thing. When when you say not being understood, what did how did that manifest itself? What were the behaviors that you observed that that led you to believe you weren't understood? I think when I was sharing maybe how tired I was getting, I remember one time being told that's a football industry. And you either go like, you know, you've got it or you don't have it. Um, This is what we do in the industry without even, you know, being listened to of like what my experiences were or what I was going through. Because, you know, to a degree, like maybe, yes, the industry is like that. But if you don't validate what people are going through or don't even listen, especially if you're in a leadership position, there's opportunity for people to get more disgruntled and upset and feel like they're not supported. And then ultimately that just fuels the the chaos that's already going on inside of their brain. It's really timely that we're talking about that in the context of, of society and workplaces in general, including sporting workplaces. And because, of course, as we're recording, it's September 2021 and we're in our second year of a global pandemic and we're hearing more about burnout, mental anguish, mental distress mental health or lack thereof as a result of people being on and burning out and just the stress, the continued stress. And as you said off air earlier, trauma of this stuff. Burnout is, it is stress and trauma and and all of that kind of stuff. But leaders, they have to know what it looks like and what it sounds like and not, I think, let's not wait for a global pandemic or or our people in sport to burn out. Uh, Let's understand what it's like so that we can start to say, well, is, is Emily just having a rough day or the fact that she's a bit disengaged or a bit grumpy. What's going on here? Oh, well, let's have a look at the system. Are we supporting you? You know, and and I, I can't help but come back to that gig economy that women in sport are so overrepresented in patching together gigs to make ends meet. And I can't help but make an assumption. And it's an assumption and this is an opinion. So I have I have not done research into it, but I, I can't help to look at the correlation between women having to gig in sport and burnout and the fact that women experience burnout and exit from the sporting industry or don't progress into leadership roles. Am I making a gross assumption here around the link to gender and burnout? I mean, I wouldn't say it's wrong. (laughs) (laughs) There is a lot of factors though to consider that there can be some benefits with the gig economy. For me right now, you know, to provide people context, like I've been unwell for the last year. And, you know, I don't have a lot of capacity to do as much as what I used to. And to be able to stay within the industry for a short time gig can be quite beneficial. But those options can only be chosen or those paths can only be gone down if I have support back home, if I've got people that are, you know, willing to support what I want to do. So that I have the opportunity to do that. And, you know, more often than not, women are going to be the ones that are maintaining the household and doing the chores and doing a lot more of that work. And that can add in gig after gig after gig and not being able to fund or, you know, support looking after the kids and, you know, having more of an equitable relationship, you could say. It's probably not the right word, but I'm just going to use that for the sake of, there's just a lot of things that, that need to be considered with that. But a way out of the gig economy is to become a leader and you're right in saying that if women aren't able to be given the leadership positions they're going to be consistently put in into you know this space and it's just not sustainable enough for them as from my experience to do it for as long as you know maybe a younger 
male who doesn't have to bear the responsibilities as much as what a woman would have to. So Annabelle Crabb writes a lot about gender in, in a whole range of, of contexts, but her, her book, which I refer to often called The Wife Drought, talks about the fact that everyone needs a wife because by and large, most successful male CEOs have someone, a typically their wife or, or female partner that has enabled their career. So for those CEOs in that unforgiving footy environment, and I am, I've got a couple floating before my eyes at the moment, yes, they actually have had a partner who has been keeping the home fires burning quite literally, as in they can work those unforgiving, extraordinary hours because they've got someone taking care of the stuff that makes a family and a household run. Now, yeah, that that is not a criticism of, of those individuals themselves. This is a criticism of the very gendered roles and gender stereotypes that we experience still in society in Australia. But I think it is that unforgiving sporting environment just magnifies or amplifies that problem. So I think for me to wrap that part of the conversation up, I'd like leaders, sports leaders and those who have decision-making power to to really get to know how the gig economy prevails for women in sport, what the implications and the impacts are more broadly, but also for the individuals um, that you're leading. So get curious and start checking in on the well-being of, of those women and also start to think how might we do things differently? How might we redesign our workplace, our sporting workplace to create that equity, but also so that we have women flourishing and sustaining in sport, not just surviving or, as it turns out, not surviving and exiting. So get to know what burnout is and and how your system is uh, perhaps making that perpetuate longer than we would like. So let's have a talk. I want to do a bit of a flip now into some positive territory and yeah, potentially controversial for for some people listening because you're saying that sometimes being a woman is an advantage in sport. So tell us about how that works out, please, Emily. It's funny when I first got asked this question maybe two years ago, I really thought that to a degree. And now that I've taken a seat back, it's definitely not. (laughs) Okay. All right. Probably not as much as what I thought it would be. I think that there are opportunities available for women. And if you are a woman that is stepping into leadership positions, you are fortunate to a degree because people will support you. If you choose to step into that yourself, or you have women that are propping you up or, you know, really good male allies that are propping you up to be a female leader in sport, there are a multitude of amount of opportunities for professional development, for positions available, experiences as a female, especially in the coaching world. Like one um, female coach in the AFLW, at a point there was zero. Well, right now, right now there are zero. Technically, right now there are zero women coach head coaches in the AFLW, the women's game. So yes, we will talk about that. However, there are pathways available. Clubs are opening up more opportunities specifically for women to be involved. So Yes, it can be an advantage in that sense, but the numbers are still limited. You still face a lot of the same confidence issues or me with 10 years of experience coaching and still being told how to coach and you know what's the best thing to do. Like, Here's my you- plan for you, Emily, and I'm going to completely disregard the fact that you've got 10 years experience under your belt. Exactly. 
Exactly. So what I'm hearing from you is that you have changed your mind somewhat or you've qualified your opinion about being a woman is advantageous in footy and in sport. What I'm hearing is that whilst there aren't enough yet, if you've got the drive and you've got the ambition, but you've also tapped into those male allies, the power of male allies, those male allies who are sitting in positions of power and influence and can sponsor you into positions, that's where being a woman can be at an advantage. I would argue that we are trying to level a very uneven playing field right now. So, and this is where the equity conversation comes in. I've I've been involved in much discussion, both online and in real life about you have to do your time, there's a pathway to go through, you have to build the experience, blah, 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 blah. And that's great. But what that doesn't do, what those arguments don't do is say, we actually have an inequitable situation at the moment. Women are not on the same starting line as men are. So what what do we do to, like we do in sport, to provide handicaps or, you know, staggered starts and all that kind of stuff. So I guess the call to action here is to say, if you're a male ally, find a woman to sponsor who is driven and ambitious. Don't just go and pick the first woman that you find, but go and find an Emily McKee who is driven and ambitious and credentialed and credible and ready to take the step and catapult her in, insert her into the conversations, insert her into the opportunities. And if you're a woman, who wants to go far in footy or in sport more generally, find those male allies, that sponsor, that person who can help your career soar is incredibly important. So it's a two-way street. So we don't want male allies just going, going, I'll find a woman and and bring her forward. If she's not ready or doesn't want it, we don't actually want her to be there, but we want those women to say, if I'm ready, I'm going to put my hand up. And we want male allies to go, I see you, I'm going to help you and let's do this together. I think that's a really big part of it, as well as the system providing those accelerated opportunities. And yes, we do have to over-index on developing women coaches. We have to over-index on developing women board leaders. We have to over-index on developing more women into the game. And that is just a fact because I'm not going to talk about the business case about why this is good for sport because it is proven, but that's what we have to do, right? The thing that came to mind for me as you're talking has to happen not just at a elite level or a semi-elite level. Uh, The emphasis has to be on community level as well. I think if you're talking female coaches, most of the pathways or most of the opportunities that I've seen are for players that have either A, been an ex-AFLW player and then been put into a pathway at a higher level straight away without any coaching experience, which is fine. Like I'm, I'm happy with that, but that's where a lot of the the emphasis has gone into rather than getting women coaching at a community level. Like I've actually, you know, if we're talking about benefits of being a female leader or, you know, development opportunities. There's a grant called Change Our Game. And, you know, through that, like I've been able to offer some clubs like a professional development, one-on-one mentoring for women coaches at a community level, you know, for women that are maybe coaching for the first time and really need that support on trying to determine what are they, what kind of drills are they going to run? What are they going to do when the players are attacking? What are they going to do when the players are defending, what are the fundamentals that you're trying to teach? There needs to be more emphasis on that because I can't do it alone. But, you know, how do we get more people there from the community pathway then going through the path to get to the semi-elite level rather than just relying on ex-AFLW players coming into the system because you're really, like, not a, allowing a larger portion of society um, even an insight into what that environment could be like. And it's ultimately, like, it's actually quite life-changing. Like, if you jump into even semi-elite, like, whoa, that's different. I was well over my head. That was tough. But do I do things differently? 
now? Is my life differently now? Like, do I lead my life differently? Hell yeah. This is one of the best things I could have done for myself. It's interesting because, and I'm, I'm glad that you've introduced the, the sports grants. So we're here in Victoria and Australia where Emily and I are talking. So the Office of Women's Sport and Recreation has the Change Our Game gender equity approach, which is which does all sorts of different things, including runs the grants programs and, you know, organisations have to be compliant with a broad set of, of requirements to be able to tap into those grants. So I have heard the stories about where the grants have made a significant difference and have enabled the, you know, female-friendly facilities to be built for women's development programs to be run, things like that. I've also heard the flip side where there's been some box ticking to tap into, not just grants, but also to, to kind of go, hey, we better get onto this women's thing because it'll fill in whatever, you know, goal you've got there. And there hasn't been a genuine desire to create a multi-gender inclusive sporting environment. So how do sports clubs at every level, and I agree, community right through to, to elite, how do they recognise what's box ticking and what's not? But you've seen it when the when the tokenism's been there. You've, you've experienced the box ticking, right? So everyone knows I've given a few questions before this interview and I, this was part, partially one of them. What I'd written down was do the work and figure out what your unconscious biases are. That was it. And mostly focusing on the unconscious bias because it's so funny because you know, maybe you and I, Michelle, we'd look at that and go, that's box ticking. Some other people might go, oh, we're doing the right thing. Like we almost well-intentioned, but they're still box ticking at the same time without even realizing that that's why they've done it. Like their motivation has stemmed from the fact that they could get more updated facilities and not the fact that they genuinely want to be inclusive for females or yeah, they, they have this idea of what it's like, you know, that we can be more inclusive, but they don't know how to facilitate it. Like let's take the, the Nick Del Santo thing. One of my other interviews in this series is with Lisa Alexander. So the long-term former head coach of the Australian Diamonds. Anyway, you'll have to listen to that interview, but yeah, I'm very interested. Let's go there about the Nick Del Santo appointment. Well, and I'm just more speaking to the unconscious bias, right? So, and I've got nothing against Nick. I don't know him. I don't know anything about him. The limited knowledge that I do have is that he's coached in the Next Gen Academy of Girls and Boys and hasn't had a lot to do with female football. I could be wrong, you know, and I'm so happy to be to stand to be corrected in that. Oh, now, Emily, what I will do, because we will have some non-Australian, non-Australian rules football folk listening. So for context, there was recently, uh, so St Kilda Football Club recently announced that the new coach, so after their current head coach or previous most recent head coach, Peter Searle, the only head coach, woman head coach in the women's game left the club. St Kilda announced that their one of their alumni from the men's AFLM was going to be appointed to be the coach, had not coached at a senior level before and was quoted as not really understanding or having much interest in the women's game up until now. So so quite naturally, a, a number of folks, including myself, were I think justifiably outraged at what appeared to be a very tone-deaf appointment. I almost cried, I'll be honest. Yeah, you and I were exchanging messages in that week, yeah. Like I, I actually genuinely saw that and I was said to my partner at the time, I go, I actually have no, ho- no hope. I don't even think I want to coach today for a W level anymore. Like maybe it was a goal three or four years ago when the comp started, but I just looked at that and went, you are absolutely kidding. And it is interesting how dispiriting those appointments are are so dispiriting and so soul-destroying for, for those of us, for, for women who are so committed to sport. And and like you, and I think we, ex- we were exchanging messages that week, 
that, along with reading the Boys Club book, I felt duped and ripped off. And and I've been very public about my goal to be the commissioner of the AFL. And like you, I went, I don't think that's my goal anymore because I don't think I could ever make a difference. And I, and I don't think the commission is making a difference. But it was just, it was that straw that broke the camel's back and it was devastating. Like you, I don't know Nick Del Santo. I don't know who he is as a human. That, that actually, he is actually irrelevant. It was the fact that yet another former male player has been catapulted in and the AFLW is now seen as a pathway. It's the, you know, the sandbox to get another bloke ready for another head coaching role. But the impact on us, on, on women is just so significant, isn't it? Yeah, it affected me more than what I ever thought something like that would and literally shaped, changed my goals and, you know, where I want to be and probably the the effect that I want to have on female coaches coming through the ranks now. Like I've literally gone from aspiring to be highest level coach that I can to now just how can I give back and just get women involved in my community in a coaching level and support them to the best capacity that I can. One of the things I did want to talk about though was, you know, going back to the unconscious biases. One of the quotes that I saw was that he was almost the best person for the job. Oh, the good old merit argument. Excellent. Let's go there. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to touch on was like what defines, you know, how someone's the best person for the job because if you are and this can be for anybody like me as a young female the people that I think that are going to be best for the job are people that probably look through look at the world through either a a sociological lens or b a feminist lens if you're a white male that's been in the football system for 50 years people that you think are probably going to be the best for the job are going to be ex-AFL players that are wanting to being an AFL men's coach. Well, we know that we know that merit is highly subjective. There is no one definition of merit simply because there is no one definition of a human being. Julie McKay, who is the ex-head of, of UN Women in Australia, has written a brilliant piece some some years ago, but it stands the test of time about merit. And it is it's something that I share quite often, particularly with my clients when they start talking about just I just you know, want the best person for the job. Or when it's women saying, I don't want to be promoted because of my gender, because that's not meritorious. So it's a really good subject to to determine what what is meritorious in our environment. So what would be meritorious for the appointment of a, of a St Kilda AFLW coach? I suppose someone that's been uh, working with women for you know, maybe two or three years or been working in that space for for a while. It doesn't, you know, to be honest, it doesn't have to be a female coach. Like the thing that was soul destroying about Nick Del Santo was the fact that he hadn't had any involvement with women at all. Well, I I think you and I talked off air before. So Patrick Hill, who is an extraordinary coach of women's teams and has been committed to the women's game, both at Hawthorne and now at St Kilda. For me, when I knew Peter was moving on from St Kilda, I thought, oh, Paddy's a shoe in here because he has, and Hawthorne VFLW powerhouse, right? But no. So I think this is the, this is the really important conversation about merit. What is meritorious? And it isn't just about, it has to be a woman. Now I think that there's, it's going to be a really, bad look for the next team that catapults an ex-AFLM player in as a coach. I'd like to think that all the boards uh, and the CEOs are on notice now to say, this is not a good thing. However, I have learned not to be just surprised and disappointed. But, you know, I would be saying, why didn't Patrick Hill get the gig? That is meritorious. So uh, it's not just always about gender, right? He was the VFL head coach of St Kilda. So why wouldn't there be a succession pathway through that? The girls would probably 
already know him. He's built relationships with some of the players. He's also got relationships with some of the coaches that have moved on from Hawthorne previously that were involved in that VFLW team. He's got relationships with key people and talent across the industry, full stop. So he has got credibility. He has got grunt. So not only would he, not only can he get on-field performance going because of his coaching style and his, his clear ability, but he's got the ability to attract and retain talent across all aspects on and off the field because he's been committed to the game. But interestingly enough, talking to Lisa Alexander about this, it's I think you said it before, do you have to have had 50 years of experience in the AFL to be considered meritorious for anything? And I remember some advice I got from someone, a great mentor of mine, when I set my cap at being a significant contributor to the AFL industry. And she just said, you've never played AFL. You've never coached AFL. You've ne- you haven't been in the system. I said, yeah, but I'm a great businesswoman. I'm a great lover of the game and I know how to get shit done for the game. Why wouldn't you think that I was an asset to, and she said, just making you aware that this is the stuff around the boardroom tables that is currently what is considered merit. Now, I will say that that is a conversation that's now about six or seven years old, maybe a bit longer actually. So we are starting to see some of those shifts in the boardrooms, but not yet on the, on the playing field or on the coaching, in the coaching arena. What now, because we've talked about the your experience through sport, the gig economy and the impact that it has on you. We've talked about where women are overrepresented and underrepresented. We've talked about why it's important to think about bias in the appointments of coaches and other people in, in the world of, of football. If you were giving advice to a club, whether it be a community or elite level or anywhere in between, Emily, what's your advice to help them improve right now? What's their first steps to make things better for girls and women? I would ask them first, when was the last time you had a conversation with a woman or you know female in your organization about what is the best step moving forward, whether it's community or whether it's at a semi-elite or an elite level. When was the last time that you did research into what is actually going on with their experiences that they're having and how can you best support that? Because if you're making decisions based on what you assume is the best thing, I mean, if you don't have lived experience, sure, you can understand if you really want to delve into the research, but you'd come across or you'd get to a point where you'll notice that each industry or each area that you're the area that you're working in is completely unique and specific and people have different needs. You know, community needs are different to elite level needs. Fundamentally, you know, it's based on relationships. The reason why people drop out of sport, women drop out of sport is because they don't feel like they belong. Or they're being delivered a program that's so basic that they're not leveling up. And, you know, you can address that. But, yeah, you need to ask the question, what's going on? What do you want? What are you experiencing? That diagnostic piece. And, and it is so important. The You're right. The assumption, I mean, someone assumed that you didn't know what you were talking about when they proceeded to give you a half an hour lecture on how to be a good coach and what you're going to get out of it. So, which was a perfect example of not taking the time to get to know what the lived experiences of women inside and outside the game on and off the field. And also bringing our own mindset and our own bias and our own assumptions 
relevance to the decision-making table. So I think that's extraordinarily good advice. So for any sporting administrator listening right now, well, I actually have a really, really good tool called the 5 by 5 Quite simply, it's a conversation guide. You find five women and you have five conversations with them. In fact, it's not a conversation. You're going to ask them five questions and you're going to listen to them and then you'll get a really good sense of what's going on in your club or in your sporting sector or your industry about what the lived experience is of women. So people can contact me separately for that. Emily's onto it. Ask, what do they want? What do they need? What are they experiencing? And then what are we going to do about that? Emily, as always, it's been a pleasure. I, you're, you're a very wise person. You have a lot of lived experience in the, the sport and particularly the Australian rules football industry. And your, your lived experience includes having joy, having great highs, and, and it also includes having great lows, experiencing burnout and not feeling valued and respected. But I know that at some point, perhaps, you know, perhaps you will be the head coach of one of the AFL-M teams and perhaps perhaps I'll be the AFL chief commissioner and we might have a yarn at that time over a beer. How does that sound? Man, that would be amazing. <laughs> that would be very amazing. And you know what? Provided you and I both get our love back for, for those goals, I reckon we can make it happen. So thank you very much for your time. Time. Oh, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure being on this one. So yeah, it was great to have a chat. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. I hope that you can gain a lot of insights and importantly, take action wherever you may work in sport. Please, if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating. It really helps to spread the word. And of course, please do share this episode with your friends, with your colleagues and with your network of people in sport, because together we can close the leadership gender gap.